If you have your Bible, you can open to the book of Hebrews. We're in our second week preaching through this book. And we're going to focus today on uh, verses 4 uh, to 14 in chapter 1, but I'm going to read through the whole chapter just to give us context. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. When it gets to that point in It's a Wonderful Life, when Zuzu says that to her dad, I am a sobbing mess. It begins on the bridge when Bert the cop arrives. From then till the end, the tears are flowing. If you haven't seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, it's about a man named George Bailey who's helped by an angel named Clarence. In the movie, Clarence is sent down from heaven uh, as George's guardian angel, and, he, and he's sent down at his most desperate moment. He helps him to see what his life would be like if he never existed. And if Clarence does a good job, he will win his wings. What do you think about angels? Do you believe that they exist what do you think their, their role or their purpose is? 
if we're honest, angels have a little bit of a, a mystery to us. We, we like the idea of, of an angel like Clarence that would be our guardian angel that could just swoop down at our most desperate moment and help us out. But I would guess that a lot of our thinking about angels is shaped more by what we've seen in movies and on TV than what the Bible actually says. You may even have a temptation to think better of angels than you do of Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2, 18, the Apostle Paul actually warns the church against the worship of angels. But in this passage today, the author doesn't just want to teach us about angels. He's making a comparison between Jesus and angels. It's the first of a number of comparisons that he will make in the book. But this isn't a comparison of, of two things that are similar with kind of have some differences. He, he, it's not like he's comparing Honda and Toyota or a Happy Meal and a steak dinner. He's not saying this is, this is how Jesus and angels are similar, but Jesus is just a, a little bit better. He's saying, here's how Jesus is so far superior to angels that it's not even close. And his purpose for us, it's not just that we would understand the comparison, but that we would personally see and know and worship Jesus as the exalted Christ. That we would see him as the one who is superior to everyone and everything in all creation. And so to show this, to show the superiority of Christ, the author will quote from seven Old Testament passages that point to four aspects of Jesus' superiority compared to angels. The first one is this. The exalted Christ has a better name. The exalted Christ has a better name. The author begins in verse 4 by telling us that Jesus is superior to angels because the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It doesn't say that Jesus was, was given or received this name, but that he inherited this name. We heard last week in Kyle's message in verse 2 that Jesus is the heir of all things, showing that Jesus shares in the Father's authority. Only a true heir has the right to inherit what belongs to the Father. Then in verse 5, the, the two quotes there come from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. Psalm 2 is a psalm that, that speaks to the coming rule and reign of the Lord's anointed king. 2 Samuel 7 is where God makes a covenant with King David, promising him that one of his offspring will have the throne forever. The author uses these two Old Testament passages to ask a rhetorical question. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. To which of the angels did God ever say that? The answer is none of them. God has never called the angels 
his son. God says things about his son that he says of no other. That name and that position is reserved for Jesus and Jesus only. Think about the life of Jesus. He, he walked around the earth claiming to be the son of God, claiming to be equal with God, claiming that God would raise him from the dead. At his baptism, we hear a voice from heaven, the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus doesn't deny that claim. He embraces it. Some people believed these claims. Some people doubted these claims and mocked him for these claims. The religious leaders put him to death for these claims. But God proved these things to be true by raising Christ from the dead. Proving his status as the son of God, proving everything he said was true. In Romans 1, chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Paul is telling us that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he showed us in the fullest and greatest way possible that Jesus was his Son. None of this was ever done for or said about the angels because the exalted Christ has a better name. Second point, angels worship the exalted Christ. In verse 6, we have another statement from God. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is superior to the angels because the angels are commanded to worship him. And they gladly obey that command. Surrounding Jesus' life is the worship, the unending worship of angels. And in their worship, they point to his greatness. John gives us a picture of this in Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In Luke chapter 2, we see the angels announce the birth of Jesus to some shepherds in the field. 
And at one point, the, the sky fills with angels, and they are singing out glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Think about the shepherds. They don't hear the announcement of, of Jesus and go, eh, we're good. We'll just hang out with you angels. You're pretty great. This is good enough. Right? Can you imagine that? No, they, they don't hang around to worship the angels. If, if superior beings like angels tell you there is something better, there is someone better, go and see him, go and worship him, you do that. And that's what the shepherds do. They, they run to see this thing that the angels have made known to them. Not only do angels worship Jesus, not only do they point us to worship Jesus, but they would correct us if we had misplaced worship. In the book of Revelation, the, the apostle John is overcome. He has been with an angel who is showing him incredible visions of the end times. He's overcome by the visions. He's overcome by the presence of the angel. He doesn't know what to do, and so he falls down and worships the angel. And the angel says to him, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with all those who keep the words of this book. No, don't worship me. Worship God. The angel says to John, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a fellow servant with you. Direct all your worship to God. Angels will obey this command to worship the exalted Christ, and they will obey it forever. Angels are pretty great. They're, they're supernatural beings. They have incredible splendor and wonder. And all the greatness that they possess, it ultimately exists to point us to the superior greatness of Christ, the one who created them. He's the wonderful one. He's the one to consider as superior. Angels have a daily view of the exalted Christ, and they understand their position, and they live as worshipers. And we should follow their example. That picture that John gives us in Revelation 7 of, of worship around the throne, we're part of that picture. One day we will worship with the angels, with people from every tribe and tongue and nation. In that day, we will worship like we've never worshiped before. But we don't need to wait for that day. Just like the angels, we are commanded to be worshipers now. That's, that's the purpose of this book of Hebrews. That we would see Jesus see him as superior, see him in a, as in a greater way than we've ever seen him before, and we would be moved to worship. Now, when we say that word worship, what we often think is singing in church, 
or having Caleb on in the car as we're going to work. And worshiping through music is great. But when we talk about worship, we mean that our life would be a life where we, we think and act and talk and live like Jesus is greater than anything else. That's what worship means, not just on Sundays, not just when Christian music is on, but in all of life. So when you're in line at ShopRite, and it's four carts deep, and it's a new checker, (laughs) and you choose gratitude, you're thankful you didn't have to grow or hunt anything that's in your cart. Choose gratitude instead of complaining. That's worship. When your parents ask you to do something and you choose to honor them with a good attitude instead of rolling your eyes and shrugging your shoulders, that's worship. When you think about all that you have, all of your possessions and all of your money in the bank, And you think, God comes first. God comes first no matter how hard it is and no matter what sacrifice that entails, that's worship. It's in those moments of life, the the little, regular, everyday moments, that's when we worship. Third, Angels serve the exalted Christ who rules with power and perfection. In verses 7 to 12, we are given the the role and the authority of angels compared to the role and authority of Jesus. In verse 7, we read, Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Angels are incredible spirit beings. There's a lot we don't know about angels, a lot that's mysterious to us. But we read here that they're ministers and their, their nature is like wind and fire. The Bible tells us that angels are created beings that function as God's messengers and servants. They reveal his plans. At times they protect his people And verse 14 tells us that ultimately they serve God's purposes for the sake of his own people. Think of Daniel in the lion's den. You might have seen that story in flannel graph glory in in Sunday school. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. He's going to be torn to bits. And God sends angels to close the lion's mouth, so he is not harmed. The angels didn't get together and say, oh, there's Daniel. He's in a bad spot. We better go down and help him out. God sent them for his purposes. If you were struggling financially and your rich uncle sent you a check in the mail, you wouldn't hug the mailman. You would thank your uncle In the same way, 
angels are just messengers of the exalted Christ, and they serve his purposes for our eternal good. They don't have any authority of their own, but they operate under the authority of God as his servants. But when God speaks of Jesus' role and his authority in verse 8, we read this. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. This series of Old Testament quotes come from the book of Psalms, and they they speak to Christ's supreme authority as the ruler and creator of everything. The angels are sent out to serve, but Jesus rules from an eternal throne that will last forever and ever. His scepter is one of uprightness, meaning that he rules with absolute perfection. That's easy for us to say, but that's a hard concept for us to to get. We can think of of kings and and presidents uh, who rule with imperfection. Every king we could study about, every president we have been under, they rule with imperfection. Some are, are bent on evil. Others, they work for good, but none are perfect. None could ever be described as ruling with a scepter of uprightness. None could ever be described as loving righteousness, loving what is right and hating what is evil. Only Jesus rules with perfect righteousness. Because only Jesus is perfectly righteous. In his life, Jesus lived. He lived with perfect obedience, perfect love, perfect honor of his Father. In his actions, in his motivations, in his desires, in his thoughts, There was never a hint of wrong. He was always pure, always perfect, always truthful, always God-centered, always loved others perfectly. This is why Jesus is lifted up. This is why Jesus is exalted as king. He alone is the only one that can be called perfectly righteous. Deep down in our heart, this is what we want. Did you ever say, I just want everything to go right for a change? Our hearts ache for this type of righteousness and perfection. But we don't find it in ourselves. We can't find it by working harder tomorrow. We can't find it in celebrities. 
We can't find it in a political leader or any new law, no matter how good it is. It's only found in Jesus. But besides this, this yearning for things to be right, we need this type of perfect righteousness. We cannot stand before God without it. One day, everyone in this room will die. And in that moment, we will stand before God, the perfect judge who has a perfect standard. In that moment, where will you turn? What power or what authority will you turn to to stand before God? Jesus is the one we can run to. Because of his perfection, he was able to die for our sin. He was able to exchange his perfect life for our sin-filled life. He's able to give his perfect righteousness to us so that we can stand before God as clean and perfect. Jesus isn't some distant king on some distant throne just showing off his power. He's a king who left his throne to become the one who would give himself for his people. But not only is Jesus this perfect ruler, he rules supremely with power over everything he has created. Not just single nations, not just single continents or single planets, He's supreme over stars and galaxies and solar systems, and he holds control over and sustains all the forces of nature. The deepest part of the ocean is the Mariana Trench. It's off the coast of the Philippines. At the deepest part, it's, it's around seven miles deep. And at that depth, the pressure of the water is incredible. The pressure in this room is around 14 PSI, 14 pounds per square inch. The average pressure in your car tire is 40 to 50 PSI. At the bottom of the Mariana Trench, it's 15,000 PSI. One scientist said, if you want to feel that pressure, stack a hundred elephants on your head. <laughs> Yet in these bone-crushing pressures, Jesus created animals that thrive. The Dumbo octopus, the deep-sea hatchetfish, the ping-pong tree sponge, and the frilled shark. Love it down there. Jesus created and sustains the conditions there. He created and sustains the animals that live there. And he created and sustains all of life and rules with power beyond our comprehension. Fourth, the exalted Christ has already won. Verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
a victorious general would put his foot on the neck of a defeated enemy. We heard last week in verse 3 that after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, showing that his work was completed on the cross. Sin and Satan and death are all defeated enemies. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, and those are his footstool, because there is no more work for him to do. So for us, this means that every fear, every concern, every wrong, every injustice, every nagging thought of guilt from our past will be dealt with and made right. And so are you fearful of the future? Have you been hurt or betrayed? Are you facing a, a sudden and surprising diagnosis? Do you feel like your body's aging and your capacity is shrinking? There is nothing. There is nothing. Nothing that you face that Jesus, the risen and ruling and supreme one, cannot handle. Richard Phillips in his commentary on Hebrews says this, what is there you might need, but that the risen and reigning Lord and Savior is the answer? There's nothing you might face, nothing you might lack, nothing you might need in all your weakness and sin and human frailty that is not found abundantly in him who loves you and gave himself for you and now reigns forever as Savior and Lord who remains the same and whose years have no end. In these 10 verses, God is exalting Christ. The Father loves his Son. He loves to exalt his Son. But why? Why does God do this? Why did God create everything through his Son? Why did he create angels to serve and worship his son? Why did he send his son to live a perfect life? Why did he raise him from the dead and give him the throne of the kingdom forever? Why? For his glory and for our good, that we would see in Jesus God's overwhelming love for us, that we would see Jesus and know him and in him find our greatest joy and greatest happiness by being a people that exalts Christ in our life. So the words of this book of Hebrews are not just about angels. They're not just about Christ as supreme. They're about God's love for us. And if these words are about God's love for us, then these words are about us. If you have come to trust in Jesus, then the Bible says that you are united to him. You are united to Christ. In Hebrews 3.14, it says we have come to share in Christ. If we have come to share in Christ, and if these words are true about Jesus, they are true about us. 
So briefly, in closing, let's go back through this passage. Verse 2 speaks of God appointing Christ as the heir of all things. In Romans 8.17, we read, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are joint heirs with Jesus, who is the heir of all things, and he shares his inheritance with us. Verses 4 and 5 talk about sonship and the name that Jesus has inherited from the Father. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Through Jesus, we are adopted into God's family. We become his children, and he gives us the name children. He gives us the name child of God. God becomes our father, and we become his children. Verse 6 calls Jesus the firstborn. Not that he had a beginning or he was created, but he has the rights and privileges of a firstborn son one who would receive the inheritance from the Father. Romans 8.29 calls us the firstborn among many brothers, calls Christ the firstborn among many brothers. We are the many brothers of Christ, our elder brother, the one who shares his inheritance with us. Verse 6 speaks of angels worshiping, but we will join in that worship with people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Verse 8 and 9 speak of Jesus ruling on a throne forever and ever. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 12. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. We get to live there in heaven, under his perfect rule, under his perfect uprightness, forever and ever, and reign with Christ. Verse 9 says that God has anointed him with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. Though Jesus is the anointed one, we are his companions. He's not a distant ruler, but one who calls us friends. He shares his oil of gladness with us, meaning he shares his righteousness. He shares his joy. Jesus rules from that throne for God's glory and for our benefit, and we share his joy forever. Verses 10 and 11 speak of the earth being rolled up and changed like an old pair of clothes. 2 Peter 3.13 says, but according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. One day he will return and the heaven and the earth will be changed and they will be made new because Jesus is creating for us a new heaven and a new earth, one that is not plagued by sickness and corruption and natural disasters, but one where his righteousness dwells place of perfection and wholeness and peace is coming for all who trust in him. Verse 13 speaks of Christ's victory. His victory is our victory. He beat our greatest enemies of sin and death 
He beat them for us. We get the victory because our Savior guaranteed it by his life and death and resurrection. And so we live with hope that no matter what we face, Jesus has already won. This is what Jesus has done for us. He is far superior to angels. He is far superior to everyone and everything in all creation. God sent his son so we would see, so we would know, and so we would worship him as the exalted Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, what a picture we have here in these verses, verses of Jesus our Savior. We thank you that you have laid out for us an understanding of his superior greatness. We pray that our minds would, would marvel at the truth here, but that what we think about Christ would sink deep into our hearts so that we would be people that live to worship Christ your Son in both the big and the little moments of life, that we would consider him superior to all, that you would give grace to help in these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.